1: saying amongst the Lebanese. It goes like this. When you think you have understood Lebanon, then you have misunderstood it. I gotta tell you that Lebanese saying, it's 100% true. Last month, September of 2016, I got to spend one beautiful, heartbreaking, life-changing week in this country nestled on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. I was there at the invitation of World Vision. They're a global Christian humanitarian organization. And they wanted those of us on the trip, and the people on the trip included everyone from journalists to activists and advocates, even people doing research on U.S. policy. They wanted us to see the work being done to provide relief for the more than one million refugees from Syria now living in Lebanon. I'm Megan Teets, and this episode is part one of a special series on Sorta Awesome called A Refuge for Refugees. This is Lebanon. Confess right now that before World Vision asked me to come to Lebanon, I had very little context for the plight of Syrians fleeing their country outside of what I had seen and read in Western media, and even that was very little. I thought most of the refugees were fleeing to Europe with an eye on eventually resettling in Canada or the US. I had no idea that nearly 90% of Syrian refugees stay in the Middle East. Those who can't afford to leave their war-torn homeland find their way to countries like Turkey, Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, and Lebanon. Lebanon, well, here we are. Another confession for you, as a child of the 80s, my only context for this country came from news footage covering the Lebanese Civil War. When I heard Lebanon, all I could see in my mind were military jeeps speeding through the streets of Beirut, men perched in the back armed with AK-47s, groups of men on the street underneath bombed-out buildings hurtling grenades while the sound of bullets rang out in the background. In fact, after the Murrah building bombing here in Oklahoma City in 1995... I called my parents, who lived far away from my home state of Oklahoma at the time. We watched the news together over the phone. As the film footage rolled over and over, showing the unthinkable devastation of that bombing, my dad said, This looks like something you'd see in Beirut. So yeah, bombings, violence, chaos, terror... Even though Lebanon's civil war has been over for 26 years, in my American mind, these words were used to describe Lebanon. And I was a little bit terrified when we flew into Beirut. I mean, I really had no idea what to expect, but I didn't expect to be greeted from the air by countless high-rise buildings, windows gleaming in the setting sunlight. But those fleeting moments of terror were quickly replaced with, well, I'm just going to say it, awe and wonder, which I know sounds cheesy, but I can't help but to gush about it. I can't stop thinking about what I now know Lebanon to be because now I know that Lebanon is all coastline and snow-capped mountains and scenic valleys. I know it's intensely urban with cities packed and stacked with people, but it's also red tile roofed villas looking out over terraced gardens and fertile olive trees. Lebanon is proudly ancient, but it's also exceptionally modern. It's brutally loud, but it's also impeccably polite. Lebanon is the clanging of church bells from medieval churches followed by the adhan calling worshippers to prayer from a minaret. It's Lebanese coffee and French pastries at breakfast and ice cream shops and cafes on every corner. It's food Yeah, a lot of food. The Lebanese are known throughout the world for their incredible food. Baba ganoush, kibe, tabouleh, shawarma, and of course, hummus. Hummus so silky and lush and dreamy, you can't even believe it's merely chickpeas and tahini. The sharing of food and the table together, that's just one aspect of the Lebanese culture built around hospitality. And I don't even mean that just metaphorically. In many ways, the people of Lebanon literally have built their culture around hospitality. We drove past many, many beautiful villas in our time there, sprawling homes that we were told were designed around enormous kitchens and dining rooms, outdoor patios, always making space for hosting people and parties. It's so central to life in Lebanon. Now, many years ago, I actually got to experience this devotion to hospitality amongst the Lebanese people when I spent the better part of my senior year of high school living with a family in my hometown. My parents had to move far away from my dad's job, but this one sweet family in our church opened their home to me so I could stay, so I could move in with them. Me, a 17-year-old girl they hardly knew, they said, come stay with us, finish your senior year here. The mom of that family, Patty, she told me in passing one day that she was Lebanese. I, I, th- I think she was joking about her Lebanese nose. Now, again, I was 17, so that bit of information barely landed with me. But what really did make me take notice was how Patty was always the first to volunteer to host anything, any event, even the smallest and most ordinary of everyday things were turned into celebration. And the true calls for celebration, Christmas dinner and senior prom... Well, she turned the volume way up. Sadly, Patty passed away in 2010, her exuberant life cut way, way too short by cancer. But their oldest daughter, Trisha, has remained a lifelong dear friend of mine. So, from my hotel room in Beirut, I started sending Trisha wildly enthusiastic messages about how amazing Lebanon is and how she must bring her children someday. I also asked her if she would share just a little bit about how this famous hospitality of the Lebanese influenced her growing up years. So here's Trisha.
0: In my home growing up, we never talked about hospitality. It wasn't something that my parents explicitly taught us about. It was just the way our home was. Our home was just open and everyone knew it. It wasn't uncommon to have several extra people in our home at any given time. If someone was home, the door was open and the only people who knocked were delivering a package or a pizza. And everyone knew where to find what they needed in the house. You served yourself. And my mom loved to keep her home stocked with food and drinks and anything that might make everyone feel comfortable and welcome. And I would come home and my friends would be there enjoying themselves with my parents and and I wasn't even there. Or we might have one of my parents' friends or an extra person at dinner and it wasn't an event that we planned for, it was just an extra seat at the table. My mom's mom is full Lebanese. We called her Taitu, which is uh, Lebanese for grandmother, except that it's a, more of a slang term. It's actually more like granny. And she was born into a family with 10 siblings. So my mom has lots of cousins and we are all very close, remarkably, even though we're spread out across the country and really the world. It is a priority in my family to stay in touch and to foster those relationships. I actually got the opportunity to go to Lebanon several years ago. It was a 30th birthday present to myself and I visited the village that my great-grandfather immigrated from. And it's up in the mountains a little bit and it's, it's really small and there's a lot of family still there, Um, actually from my great grandfather's side and his wife, my great grandmother. And when I visited, I was there with my cousin who is My mom's cousin's daughter, she's about my age, and she grew up in San Diego, but she was working in Beirut at the time. And I took the opportunity to stay with her. We traveled to Kuspa together, and we met up with one of our cousins. And he spoke broken English, it was pretty good. And um, both of us spoke a handful of Arabic words. But one word I could recognize is cousin. And as he showed us around town, and we were encountering people on the street and in the ice cream shops and all the beautiful little nooks and crannies around this town, he was introducing us to everyone as this is your cousin, this is your cousin. And it seemed as if we were related to practically everyone in the town. And of course, we were welcomed into their homes and fed every single time. All the wonderful foods that I grew up eating of course, the hummus and the fresh pita bread with olive oil and the za'atar and the lebni and the kibbeh, And we would linger at the table for hours just talking. And I, I just learned so much about my family and about the, the culture. It was really a very meaningful trip for me, just in solidifying that identity I have as a Lebanese-American.
1: Our first day in Lebanon, we piled into a van and left the bustle and noise of Beirut and headed up into the mountains, out to the Kaddisha Valley. Our tour guide was a man named Ely. Ely! Oh, how I adored Ely. I think some small part of my heart is still back there with him. Ely has a PhD in archaeology, but times are tough economically in Lebanon right now. And so he does work like this, taking Westerners out to see the sites of Lebanon, trying to convey to them the magic and the mystery that is this little country. In my notes of the things Ely told us that day, I had written down that at one point he said, we are misunderstood. So see, I told you that saying is so true. The Lebanese are complicated and they like it. So up, up into the Lebanon mountains we go, slowing down in the lively villages along the way, where little girls in pigtails are gathered around, giggling in groups. Some of them were wearing Hello Kitty shirts, some had on sparkly shoes. Boys were wandering out to trucks of fresh produce, helping their brothers and their dads haul the day's deliveries into the shops. Soon we were in the Kadisha Valley. Kadisha means holy, and there is definitely a sacred feel to this area. In the Kaddisha, we stop in Bashar to visit an area known as the Forest of the Cedars of God. It's one of the last forests in a country that has long been known for its mighty cedars. The cedars of Lebanon, Eli tells us, were mentioned 74 times in the Bible. He continues by reminding us that scripture tells us that God created the universe and all that is in it in six days. And on the seventh day? He pauses, and then with a twinkle in his eye, he tells us that on the seventh day, God created the cedars of Lebanon. Yes, the Lebanese are so proud of these trees, their strength and beauty that inspired Solomon to have them brought to Jerusalem to build the temple. Well, to be sure, the Lebanese see much of their heritage in these trees that are thousands and thousands of years old, their unfading strength and beauty reflective of the people for whom they give shade. Ely led us through apple orchards and centuries-old monasteries and told us how, from the earliest days of the New Testament church, the stunning, staggering Lebanon mountains became a place of refuge for persecuted Christians and Muslims alike. It was in these mountains that the Maronite Church, um, it's a Eastern Rite community of Catholicism, and it's also the prevailing majority of Christians in Lebanon. Well, the Maronite Church was formed when the disciples of Saint Maron, he was a fourth century Syrian mystic and a priest. His disciples, they fled to the mountains to avoid persecution from the Byzantine Church. For centuries, Lebanon experienced the back and forth of waves of religious upheaval. It was sort of a tug-of-war between the Israelites and the Canaanites, and then later the Byzantines and the Roman Catholics, later still between the Muslims and the Crusading Christians. Through it all, the Lebanon mountains, with their staggering, craggy cliffs and no shortage of natural caves, provided a place of safety and refuge for those fleeing from the sword, or later from bombs and machine guns. In the modern era, the first wave of refugees to seek shelter in this refuge by the sea were the Armenians. Uh, In about 1915, the Ottoman government initiated the Armenian Genocide. As more and more Armenians were slaughtered during that war, horrible, bloody moment in history, many Armenians fled to safety in Lebanon, and the Armenian presence there is still very strong. Later, in 1948, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forced to leave their homes in what is now Israel, many found their way north to Lebanon. Their incorporation in the country was less peaceful than the Armenians. And that brings us to the present, to 2011, when the civil war in Syria broke out. When war broke out there, many Syrians began fleeing to their neighboring country to the west, to Lebanon. This influx of Syrians into Lebanon, well, it's complicated. Syria and Lebanon's relationship going back to ancient times is also complicated. There's a lot of reasons for that. But for the present day Lebanese, a lot of these complicated feelings can be traced back to the civil war. Actually, lots of aspects of life in Lebanon circle back to the war. I mean, I think it's really hard for us here in America to really grasp what it would be like to have Civil War be such a recent and raw memory. I mean, for us, the Civil War died in the dust outside of the Appomattox Courthouse 151 years ago. So unless you're a history professor or a Civil War reenactor, the United States Civil War doesn't really come up in daily conversation. The Lebanese don't actually talk about their civil war much either, but it's not because they don't remember it. Memories of the war, which lasted from 1975 to 1990, are fresh and painful. While I was waiting for my flight to leave Beirut at the end of our trip, I got to sit and visit with a Lebanese woman who had long ago left the country, married, and moved away to Germany. She and her husband raised two daughters in Germany, but still, she tries to get back to Lebanon to visit friends and family every few years. Not her brother, though. She told me, My parents sent my brother away to live with family in America during the war. They wanted him to be safe. He has never come back. Not once. She stops and looks at the floor. The war, she says quietly, was a terrible time. Someone else I got to hear speak a little bit about the war was our World Vision host for the week. This is Olivia Penicaian.
2: Uh, Everyone has passports. I don't know any liberal
1: immigrants. To me, she is Saint Olivia, as she was tasked with herding eight easily distracted Americans through her country. Americans who, as it turns out, were not always so great with following instructions. Olivia was born during the Lebanese Civil War, the granddaughter of Armenian refugees who started a new life in Beirut in the 1920s. On one of our many trips in the van to sites outside of Beirut, she tried to explain to us just a little of what it was like during the war in Lebanon.
2: Also during the war there has been, because we had from 75 until 1990 war and there was a bit chaotic. Uh, so in at that period of time, everyone in Lebanon literally fought against each other, and the Palestinians were also part of this, you know, so Christians, Muslims, you know, like Christians killing Christians, Muslims killing Muslims, Palestinians, uh, the only group who were kind of uh, neutral were the Armenians at that
1: time, so Armenians remained neutral where things get a little more complicated is that during the civil war in Lebanon, parts of the country were occupied by Syrian forces. In fact, even though the war in Lebanon ended in 1990, the Syrian occupation didn't end for 15 more years in 2005. You can imagine then that there are some bad feelings on the part of the Lebanese toward Syria. And yet, and this is so complicated, I'm telling you, Syrians are offered refuge to the Lebanese fleeing their war. Olivia told us about the time her family spent in Aleppo during the war and how later in what the Lebanese call the 2006 war or the July war, which let's push pause for a minute. I'll help you brush up on this conflict because heaven knows I had to. Uh, The 2006 war was a month long conflict between Israeli forces and Hezbollah, the Shia Islamist militant group whose numbers are the strongest in the southern part of the country near the Israeli border. Okay, so back to Olivia. Here she tells about how people in Syria offered refuge to the Lebanese during times of conflict. The first voice you'll hear is our World Vision trip leader, Johnny Cruz, and you'll also hear the voice of Vicky Reddy, co-founder of the We Welcome Refugees Movement.
2: Did Lebanese flee to Syria during the civil war? Yes, I w- we went uh, when I was uh, younger. Like, for three months, uh, we went to Aleppo. Uh, and even when there was the July war, so my uh, my father knows, like, they're not friends, but they're, like, business friends, you know, so they're not, like, family friends. So acquaintances, if you will. Like, when we had the civil war in 2006, we received so many phone calls from, uh, you know, like, Syrian, Friends, you know, like business friends, somehow asking you uh, like, please come, uh, stay in my our house, you know, like uh, don't you don't need to think of anything. So we received so many calls uh, of Syrians, you know, like asking us. Uh, and so your your family went there, for the- but uh, we didn't go for the July war. Uh, but uh, in uh, in 1990, uh, we went uh, to Aleppo for three months. You know, like my brother was born; he was like one week or two two weeks old. Like it was intensified bombings, so we just flew to Aleppo and uh, wow. stayed there for three months. Okay. And you just stayed with
0: with these friends?
2: Uh, no, at that time we rented, we had a place we stayed. Uh, okay. And then, it, then you felt it was safe enough to come back? Now, what happened during the civil war, we had like from 1975 to 1990, 1991. So there were like periods of intensified fighting. Uh, and periods of relatively peace. So I was quite young, I cannot really remember, I don't, uh, I never processed things. But we went, you know, like we fled, uh, as a family we we fled a couple of times to Cyprus, when it was like intensified, you know, like uh, the fighting. And once we went to Aleppo, so we used to go, uh, like once we went like for seven months to Cyprus, then we went to nine months, then three months to Aleppo. So we used to go back and forth depending on uh, the intensity of the fighting. What was Aleppo like? Honestly, I uh, yeah. was like 12 to Yeah, too young to remember. But I liked it. I remember yeah, like the soul, it seems like yeah. it's like burnt, you know, like yeah. close to in Lebanon. We didn't have that, you know, like it's not a mall, you know, like it's right. like a street, so close, you can enter. And then like yeah. the food and then yeah. The yeah. The, like I have like this kind of snapshots. Yeah, this is, uh, people were nice. I remember, you know, like uh, so we used to stay at somehow like a hotel type place. So the the people who used to work there used to take care of us, you know, like we were young, and they used to invite us to the kitchen, you know, like if you want to eat something, you know. And uh, so that's what I remember. Yes. So I have heard it was like a beautiful city, really safe and healthy. yes. Uh, I was very. But yes, it has
1: flat uh, there. Yeah. I think for us, after five years of coverage of the horrors and atrocities in Syria, in Aleppo especially, it's hard to remember that Syria was a stable, safe country for so long—a place the Lebanese could seek shelter from in their own years of war, and heartbreak, and death. So even though the people of Lebanon have a complicated relationship with their neighbors in Syria, you can imagine that when the Syrian war broke out, the Lebanese were happy to provide shelter. Well, in the beginning, they were. But as the years of conflict showed no signs of ending, in fact, were getting worse in Syria, and more and more and more Syrians were fleeing across the border to Lebanon, tensions began to rise. Lebanon was already a country struggling with a high cost of living and many people living in or near poverty. When Syrians began arriving and staying and after their savings ran out and they were desperate for work, jobs that would have at one time gone to Lebanese people were now going to Syrians who would work for far fewer wages. The waves of bitterness and resentment began to mount. But honestly, the way I understand it, there's a greater fear on the part of the people of Lebanon, as they get used to the new normal, where as many as one out of every four people in their country is now a Syrian who fled the war. We got to hear from a Lebanese man at lunch our first day there, as he very candidly shared his biggest fear when it came to the Syrians. There's this precarious balance in the demographics in Lebanon, where the closest guess on religious breakdown is that 40% of the people are Christian, and about 54% are Muslim. And within the Muslim communities, almost exactly half are Shia and half are Sunni. Now, this is significant because globally, Sunni Muslims make up the vast majority, like 85 or 90% of people of that faith are Sunni Muslim. So Shia globally are in the minority. In Lebanon, however, Shia Muslims find themselves in equal numbers to the Sunnis there. As this Lebanese man confided his fears about the Syrians coming to Lebanon, he noted that the Syrians are mostly Sunni Muslim, that an increased number of Sunnis would upset the already precarious balance set in his country. Additionally, Lebanese, they grew up in a culture where cathedrals are literally next door to mosques. Religious pluralism has long been the norm there. But he feared the Syrians wouldn't understand or um, respect or honor the way the Lebanese have lived in this fragile coexistence together for centuries. Later in the week, we met with Dr. Martin Akkad of the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Beirut. Dr. Akkad is a leading scholar in the study of Christian-Muslim relations. We met with him at the seminary, gathered around at a large table that had, of course, been set up with cookies and other sweets, cold water, and coffee. Now, I asked him about the concerns and fears expressed by the man at lunch, and this was his response.
3: To be honest, I think that anyone in Lebanon who claims they have no fears about the Syrian refugee uh, presence uh, are uh, are not being very honest with themselves. Uh, so, I mean, Olivia knows I've been involved for two years with World Vision staff at the beginning of the crisis, together with another uh, colleague, in trying to develop an entire curriculum uh, that would help. Um, World vision uh, personnel in um, you know developing Christ-like values of openness and uh, mm-hmm. you know sort of uh, overcoming and and being going beyond those um, deep-seated uh, fears that we have when we feel that there are too many people from the outside among us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the implication of the presence of Syrian refugees is is unquestionable. I mean, it, it is having an impact, it will continue to have an impact, and it is and will change uh, Lebanese social makeup forever. There's no question about that. Now, uh, the question is, are you able to... Rise, be, you know, above your basic uh, instincts of uh, of fear of the other. Uh, one element that helps you do that is if you recognize that uh, there is no such a thing as static population demographics are uh, in flux all the time. You know, there is no static identity anywhere. Uh, So, saying that this influx of a new element is going to change our way of life, but what is a way of life? Uh, Our way of life today is different from our parents, and theirs was different from their parents, so this is changing constantly. So, in some ways, certainly it will change, the way of life, but on the other hand, it's a question that, in a way, is not very meaningful. Uh, because our way of life is changing all the time, our social Mm -hmm. makeup is changing all the time, Uh, and it's up to us to embrace change and to, you know, and to hold on to certain core values Mm -hmm. and uh, and continue to promote values that we believe are core, Mm -hmm. such as tolerance, uh, such as openness to others. It's easier in theory than, uh, than in practice. And so fear is the, I think, the biggest enemy of dialogue and and Mm -hmm. tolerance and and living together.
1: We ended our first day in Lebanon in the busy and beautiful city of Byblos. This city right on the coast of the Mediterranean is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. For 6,000 years, people have loved living life here in Beblos, and after just one evening, I was sort of ready to pack up and move there, too. We wandered through the markets with shops packed with families out enjoying a beautiful evening. I was not thinking about fear that night, not the fears of the Lebanese or the Syrian refugees or even the fears of my fellow Americans back home. As we slowly made our way down to the edge of the water to watch the sunset over the sea, I was thinking about how no matter where you go in the world, toddlers cry outside of shops for all the toys their parents have said no to. I was thinking about how daddies will pick up and carry a kid whose legs have gotten tired from walking, and how love in bloom always looks like holding hands and goofy grins. We walk past the St. John Mark Cathedral, which sits right in front of the waterfront. It was built in 1115 A.D. by Crusaders. Stylistically, it's a perfect blend of Arab and Italian architecture. While we gazed at the cathedral's beauty, I noticed a group of teenage girls in hijabs, sweatshirts, and jeans. One held a selfie stick, and all of them were giggling as they snapped their selfies with the backdrop of the setting sun. As the sun dipped down beneath the horizon and party boats blazed across the waves, pop songs sung in Arabic nearly drowned out by the laughter and just general rowdiness of the partiers on board... I thought back to my favorite moment of the day, was when we were in the Kaddisha Valley, looking out across an area that Ely, our tour guide, told us was where many of the patriarchs of the Maronite faith were buried in caves. Later archaeological digs revealed the remains of Muslim mystics who were also buried in the area. The mountains had offered themselves as refuge for those who were fleeing someone or something, no matter what their faith. And so Ely said, even all those centuries ago, we see these sparkles of humanity and compassion. In this incredibly beautiful, wonderful country that still holds its head high, even though it limps a little as it recovers from war, humanity and compassion still sparkle, even while rising fears threaten to put those sparkles out. In part two of this series, we'll look at fear from a different angle, not from the perspective of those providing refuge, but from the voices of those desperately seeking a refuge. We'll hear from the Syrian refugees themselves next time. Thank you. Special thanks to World Vision USA and World Vision Lebanon for making this trip possible. Thank you also to Dr. Martin Akkad and his staff at Arab Baptist Theological Seminary. Many, many thanks to Vicky Reddy for additional footage. Please go to sortaawesomeshow.com for show notes on this episode, including maps, pictures, and links related to the story.